your hands together right now for Julia Claiborne Johnson. I lost my water bottle. This is a tragedy. Oh, there it is. Okay. Um, my husband and I read that review sort of concurrently, and I said to Chris, I'm delightful. And he said, your book's delightful. <laughs> Keeping it real. <laughs> I've written down what I want to say, but I'm going to try not to look at it, but I tend to blank with panic. So if I get ashen and sweat starts to pour down my face, then I'll start to look at this. Is this weird? Is it too loud or close to my mouth or anything? Okay, here we go. What? Get a little closer? <laughs> um, it's just super disorienting because it's between you and me and my public. Um, I think most of the people in this room know that when I was about 50, I can, What's that? Is the train here? <laughs> Somebody, somebody's got a train whistle. Oh, that's my train. See you guys later. <laughs> um, anyway, when I was around 50, I kind of lost my mind. I, I got it in my head I was going to write a novel, despite the fact that I had never tried to write a novel in my life. But I had this idea, and I sat down, and I got to work on it, and I um, wrote thousands of pages. Luckily, I threw most of those away. And um, I stopped... T talking to people on the phone, returning calls, returning emails. Many of you can attest to this. They were there for this time. I stopped hanging out with my friends. I didn't go to parties. I pretty much did nothing but work on this book. And here we are six years later. So that was so easy. <laughs> I'm glad that worked out. Um, there were a lot of things that inspired me to write this book. Not the least among them was this. Parenthood? Not as simple as you think. When I was in my 20s, I was a really confident parent because I had very recently been a child myself. And so I thought the fact that I didn't have any children was sort of beside the point. But by the time I got into my late 40s and I was, I had, I was a real parent who had real children, um, I was in it neck deep and I was really floundering. Um, see, what nobody warns you going in is about the carnage of parenthood. Somebody was always bleeding or getting bruised or vomiting or um, needing stitches or sobbing because they were in so much pain. Usually that was me or my husband. Um, you had to be vigilant every second of every day because if you weren't, somebody could end up dead. It was completely terrifying. Look away for a minute, just a minute, and when you look back, the house could be on fire. The chapter I'm going to read for you now is the very first chapter I wrote. It's chapter 8, so it falls kind of in the middle of the book. You may have guessed that. Um, it's kind of interesting to think about this, though, because what I found out is you don't have to start writing a novel with chapter 1. You can start anywhere you want. So, um, <clears throat> But when I sat down and started writing all this, all of my terror and fears of a mother just spilled out onto a page. And you will understand that as I read this chapter. So what you need to know going in for what I'm going to read to you is this. Um, our narrator, Alice, is a 24-year-old <clears throat> publisher's assistant sent from New York to Los Angeles to assist M.M. Banning, called Mimi, who's a reclusive literary gen genius who wrote 
one blockbuster novel in the 1970s that made her so rich she never had to sell another book. <sighs> so... <laughs> Until 2009, when the novel starts, she's been swindled of her fortune in a Bernie Madoff-style Ponzi scheme and has to write another novel fast. So Alice is supposed to transcribe her typed manuscript into a computer to send to New York, to her, to Mimi's editor in New York. And um, as each chapter goes, she's supposed to do this. But what ends up happening, what really Alice really ends up doing is taking care of Mimi's son, Frank, who... Um, is a brilliant but socially awkward nine-year-old of mysterious provenance. Frank's a snappy little dresser who loves black and white movies. He dresses like Fred Astaire, but Frank lacks the grace of Fred Astaire. In the chapter before the one I'm about to read to you, he's accidentally knocked his mother through a cracked glass door, and she's spending the night in the hospital. There was a lot of blood. Okay, we got it through that part. Now to the next. Oh, wait a minute. Where's my water? There it is. Okay. Here we go. Oh, man. That is like right in my face. Okay. It was late and we were exhausted when we got home. We tottered in through the hole where the door had been, but only made it as far as the living room couch before collapsing. You need to take a bath before you get in bed, I said after an eternity slump there. I hoped the little boy on the outside would wrestle down the insomniac old man trapped inside Frank and that both parts would tumble into bed together and fall asleep. Why? Because you're dirty. I'd wiped his face and hands before we went to the hospital, but neither of us had bothered to change our clothes. We looked like fugitives from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, a movie I'd never seen and I prayed Frank hadn't either. I don't want to take a bath, he said. He reached into his duster pocket. Cigarette? What? (laughs) I thought I couldn't have heard him right. But he produced a cellophane-wrapped rectangular pack with a label written on it in French. I was about to hit the ceiling when I noticed the word chocolat. (laughs) Where did you get these? I thought they stopped making candy cigarettes. I exchanged them for letters of transit. (laughs) Casablanca. (laughs) Casablanca, I said. I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. I drew one from the pack. Here's looking at you, kid. We'll always have Paris. Frank looked very pleased with both of us. He took, shook a cigarette from the pack and arranged it between his third and fourth fingers and was palming it to his face. Happiness, I noticed, was a facial expression that almost came naturally to him. Fear, discomfort, confusion, those made him roll down the shades and bar the door, which said a lot for Frank, if you ask me. Say you had to pick just one emotion you could convey to others easily. I like to think I'd go with happiness, too. You know, what I've always wondered, Frank said, why anyone would join the French Foreign Legion. Aside from the uniform, I like those hats very much. I wish I had one. I have a fez. (laughs) I'm not surprised. The fez is named after Fez, a town in Morocco that had a monopoly on its production. Uh Uh-huh. I said, wait, I don't remember a character from the Foreign Legion in Casablanca. There isn't one, but my father is. Your father is in Casablanca? Jeez, his dad had to be about 100 years old by now. Maybe that was why Mimi didn't like to talk about him. Not the movie, Frank said, in the French Foreign Legion. I sat forward. Your dad is in the French Foreign Legion? I imagine he might be. Otherwise, why doesn't he visit? 
Oh. Have you asked your mom about that? He exhaled, exhaled a plume of imaginary smoke and nodded. What did she say? I asked. Nothing, he said. Nada, bupkis, diddly, zip, zero, zilch. I get it, Frank, I said. There are a lot of words for nothingness, Frank said. Love means nothing. That's not true. Yes, it is in tennis. What's your father like, Alice? <laughs> is he the gentleman you're always referencing? I ran my cigarette under my nose like a Havana cigar. No, I mean, I don't know what my father's like. He's been gone since I was eight. Is he dead? I peeled the paper off my cigarette. No, maybe, I don't know, he's just gone. Maybe he's in the Legion with my dad. Maybe he went out for a pack of chocolate cigarettes and never came back, I said. I wasn't up for talking about my father. People do that? I imagine they do. Now, let's get you into the tub and then your pajamas in bed. I ate my cigarette on the way to the bathroom. Frank stood there, mesmerized, watching the water cascade from the faucet. Get undressed, I said. I want to soak your clothes overnight so the stains won't set. He turned his face from the water to commune with my elbow. What are you waiting for, I asked. Some privacy, he said. I won't look. I said, come on, hand over the clothes. Please, he said, if you don't mind. I sighed, fine. Wash your hair, scrub your nails. I'll be outside if you need me. I lay down across the doorway in the hall. He'd be okay in there by himself. As long as I could hear him splashing around, I'd know he was alive. I'd have to be deaf not to hear him. It sounded like he was wrestling an alligator in that tub. But lying down was my first mistake. The hall was carpeted, so of course I fell asleep. I think the quiet woke me. My first thought was that Frank had made a break for it, stepped over me while I was snoozing, wandered through the living room door hole, jumped the wall, and now lay at the bottom of a hill in a million pieces, bleeding, which is a good sign we had learned from the paramedics earlier in the day because bleeding people are not dead. (laughs) Um, But Frank was the kind of kid who left a trail. Wet footprints, chocolate hand tracks, scuffed walls, broken stuff. There was no sign of his passage in the hallway. Oh, no. I yanked the bathroom door open and all but fainted on the spot. Frank was in there all right. Fully clothed, goggles pushed up on his forehead, toy submarine clutched to his chest, eyes closed, pale as death, halo of floating hair. Imagine Jules Verne, angelic shipwreck victim. I shouldn't have looked up. I lost my place. Um, (laughs) Angels of course, are known for many things, one of them being that they are dead. How was I going to tell Mimi I let her kid drown in the tub while she lay in her hospital bed? I fell to my knees alongside the tub. Oh, Frank, I said, oh, no, 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 no. His eyes slid it open. Is it morning already? He asked sleepily. I sat back on my heels, dizzy with relief. You almost gave me a heart attack, Frank, I said. I thought you were dead. What are you doing in the tub with your clothes on? Sleeping. I thought it would save you work if I soaked my clothes while I soaked myself. (laughs) Are you insane? I regretted saying that immediately. No, he said. See, I took my boots off first. (laughs) He lowered his goggles over his eyes and went under. And he watched my chin while I watched the water fill the goggles. Those aren't watertight, I said when he came up for air and pushed the goggles on his, up on his forehead, forehead, however you want to say it. Um, uh, I know, I was just confirming earlier research. Listen, Frank, 
I'm sorry I said that you're insane. You didn't say I was insane, you asked. One is a statement and the other is a question. You're not the first one to ask me that either. Okay, I said, look, you need to get out of the tub. I'm going to hold up this big towel to give you some privacy. I want you to take off those wet clothes and leave them in the tub to keep soaking. That was a good idea, by the way. Just what I would have done, although I think I might have gotten out of them first. Then we'll get you dried off and into your PJs. Let's get out of these wet clothes and into a dry martini, he said. (laughs) Robert Benchley. I laughed. I was so relieved he wasn't dead, I would have laughed at anything. I've been waiting all my life to say that, Frank said. (laughs) Robert Benchley was a famous wag who belonged to a group of jazz age writers known as the Algonquin Roundtable. What you may not know is that Robert Benchley's grandson, Peter Benchley, wrote Jaws, book and screenplay. (laughs) When Frank stood, it sounded like Niagara Falls as the water cascaded from his clothing. If all the grunting coming from the other side of the towel was any indication, getting out of the wet clothes was about as easy as going over those falls in a barrel. Do you need a hand, I asked. No, thank you. Almost finished. Archimedes discovered the way to measure the volume of irregularly shaped items when he stepped into the bathtub. Did you know that? The water level rose a mount commensurate with the volume of his body. He was so excited by this insight that he shrieked, Eureka, which means I have found it. Then he ran through the streets naked. I have never been excited enough about anything to consider doing that. (laughs) That makes two of us, I said. Frank took the towel moments later and wrapped it around himself like a burqa. Now into my pajamas, he said. Alice, could you put yours on too? I've always wanted to host a pajama party. I've never had a friend to invite before. I didn't want to leave Frank alone for even a minute, but I wasn't about to decline that invitation. So I sprinted to my room, changed, and dashed back to the kitchen. There I found the pajamaed Frank at the breakfast bar. Cocktail music oozing from the piano and two uh, full martini glasses in front of him. Frank held one out to me. Thanks, I said, cradling the glass in my palm and sniffing it. Club soda. I asked for martini glasses for my ninth birthday, Frank said. So my mother got me plastic ones. Your mother is a smart woman. You're supposed to hold your glass by the stem like this, see? Frank demonstrated. That way the the warmth of your hand won't ruin the chilly deliciousness of your cocktail. (laughs) My hands aren't warming up anything right now. It is freezing in here. It's because we're missing a door. (laughs) I looked at the hole that had once been sliding glass. We should cover that, huh? We could use blankets or a big piece of plastic if we had one. Dry cleaner bags, Frank said. I have a lot in my closet. I knew this to be true. We'll piece them together, I said. You get the bags and I'll find the tape. After ransacking the kitchen drawers, bupkis, I found packing tape in a laundry room drawer. When I emerged, Frank was on the kitchen floor swaddled in dry cleaning bags. He was indulging in one of, uh, in a much more transparent and dangerous version of his favorite game, rolling around in a comforter. Stop that, I said, grabbing the plastic and rolling him free. What are you doing? Playing. You can't do that with a dry cleaning bag, Frank. This is not a toy. Look, it says it right here on the bag. This is not a toy. You could suffocate. And now we can't use these. You've shredded them. I've got more. That's not the point, I said. The point is you're a smart boy, and this would be a dumb way to die. Come with me, please. I herded him to his closet to harvest more bags. Don't touch the bags. Do you hear me? 
do not touch. What can I do then? You carry the tape. I'll get the tape measure. Meet me in the living room. When I got there, Frank was sitting on the floor behaving himself. I measured the hole and lay the bags on the floor so we could piece together something big enough to cover it. Come and give me a hand with these, I said. Please. I can't. Why not? I said, please. Look what I've done this time, he said. I looked. The kid had manacled his hands together with the tape. The almost empty roll dangled from his wrist like a charm on a charm bracelet. How did you manage that, I asked. With my teeth, he said. It was easy at first, then harder. (laughs) That was a pause there. Um, uh, I believe you, I said. I'm going to go for more tape. Don't touch anything while I'm gone. I don't think I could if I wanted to. Good. I ran back to the laundry room and came back with a second roll of tape and a pair of round-edged children's scissors to cut Frank loose. Viva la France, he said when I freed him. Viva la France, I said. Now, hold the plastic still while I tape it together. When we had a sheet that was big enough, I took it and stood by the door. I'm too short, I said. I need something to stand on. I know just the thing, Frank said. He disappeared for a minute and returned rolling his mother's big rubber yoga ball. (laughs) You've got to be kidding me, I said. You can stand on it, he said. I've done it. It's exciting. (laughs) I don't want exciting, Frank. I want stable. Why? Because I'm born that way. Listen. Bring me that chair over there instead, please. Once the plastic was up, I said to Frank, Now go to bed. I'm not sleepy yet. I'm cold. You'll warm up in bed. I'll warm up, but I won't go to sleep. I thought about all the times I'd heard Frank knocking around in the middle of the night. Okay, I said, Let's build a fire then. Frank's eyes lit up. Where? (laughs) In the fireplace, idiot. Bad. I know. I was tired. I'm sorry, Frank. I'm the idiot, not you. I know, he said. My IQ is higher than 99.7% of the American public. For some reason, that makes the children at school laugh at me when I tell them that. Can you explain that joke to me? There isn't one. Some kids laugh at people smarter than they are to make them feel stupid. That doesn't make sense. Why do they think laughing at me will make me feel stupid? Because they're stupid, I said. I'd never lived anywhere that had a fireplace before, so I was more excited than an adult person ought to be to put my Girl Scout training to use, arranging the logs and twigs from the alcove by the fireplace on top of wads of crumpled newspaper. Now, matches, I said. Where does your mother keep them? I wish I knew, Frank said. (laughs) She hides them from me. I believed that. How about... Candles. I could light one on the stove and we could use that to start the fire. She hides those too. Of course she did. I'd never seen one anywhere, ever. Not even a lousy birthday candle. You could call her and ask, Frank said. Your mother is in the hospital, I said. I am not calling her. Let me think. You know what? We could light a twig on the stove and you cannot walk through this house carrying a stick that's on fire, Frank said. My mother has told me this at least a million times. 
I was tempted anyway, but I knew I shouldn't be modeling bad behavior for a lit firecracker like Frank. Also, without meaning me ill, it would be the first thing he'd tell his mother when she saw her again. I guess we can't have a fire then, I said. I have an idea, Frank said. He disappeared down the hall. I gave chase as he beelined to the laundry room drawers where, Eureka, he found a 9-volt battery and a roll of wire. Then he beat it back to the living room where he took, a, took out the round-tip scissors from his bathrobe pocket. When did he palm those? And cut a couple of pieces of wire, wrapped one around each of the battery's terminals, and then touched the loose ends against each other. The touch produced a spark that made the paper catch fire. You're a genius, Frank, I said. How did you think of doing that? Oh, I do it in my room all the time, he said. We watched the flames reduce the uh, the logs to ember, then ash. I was so afraid of nodding off that I would have taped my eyelids open if there'd been any tape left. This had been the longest day of my life. How did Mimi function if all her nights were like this? How did Frank? One night alone with a kid and I was practically reduced to ash myself. When Frank piped up with, I'm tired now, I jumped the way mothers catapult from their chairs when their toddlers say, I need potty. (laughs) Um, Off to bed then, I said, giving him the bums rush to his bedroom. I don't sleep much in my room. If you want me to sleep, put me in my mother's bed. I sighed. All right. In Mimi's room, I pinned him tight under the blankets. Go to sleep, I said. You aren't leaving me, are you? Do you want me to stay here till you fall asleep? The thought of staying awake any longer made me want to cry. I thought we were having a pajama party. You have to sleep in here with me. I'm not sleeping in your mother's bed without her permission. It's not polite. His face went blank. Blanker, I should say. Tired as I was, I hurt for him. How about this, I said. I'll sleep on the couch in the family room. I'll be close enough to hear you if you want to talk. That's what makes a pajama party a pajama party, you know, being able to talk to somebody else until you fall asleep. That may be so, but what you may not realize is that I have a hard time falling asleep, and when I fall asleep, I wake easily, and since I slept some in the tub already, Frank, I said, I realize. Close your eyes. Close your mouth. Go to sleep. I crept out of Mimi's bedroom, leaving the door open and a light on in the hall. I fell on the couch and was out maybe 15 minutes, maybe 15 days. When I opened my eyes, Frank's face hovered inches above mine. I was so exhausted, I couldn't even muster the strength to be startled. What's up, Frank, I said. I am, he said. I couldn't sleep. I gathered. So now what? We could watch a movie... It's too late to watch a movie or, or too early. What time is it? 4 a.m.? Have you always been like this? Like what? I tried to think of a word that wouldn't wound his psyche for keeps. Nocturnal is what I came up with finally. <laughs> Nocturnal, that implies daytime sleep. I don't do that much either. My mother says my brain's lack of an off switch is a sign of unusual intelligence. Unusual, I said. Uh huh. I rubbed my eyes, sat up, and yawned. You're tired, he said. Go back to sleep. I'll sit here and watch you. (laughs) Or I could borrow your phone and make a movie of you asleep. Like Andy Warhol, his first movie was called Sleep. It was about sleep. I get the drift. No thanks, I didn't come to California to be in the movies. Let's watch Casablanca again. Frank did a quick soft shoe. 
soft slipper, really, of joy that was so unexpectedly charming that it put me right back in the palm of his hand. He'd never spent a night away from his mother in his life, poor kid. She wasn't with him now because his hug had turned into a tackle that had landed her in the hospital with 29 stitches in her scalp. You couldn't blame him for not sleeping, but you had to wonder what his excuse was every other night. Frank slid the DVD into the uh, slid, slid the movie into the DVD player, and the two of us rolled up in our comforters, shoulder to shoulder, but individually shrink wrapped in our own little movie watching cocoons. Frank fell asleep sometime during the mushy part, where Rick and Ilsa reminisce about the good old days in the Paris apartment when they thought Ilsa's husband was dead. <laughs> I stayed awake watching all the way to the end. <sighs> we made it through. Yeah. you guys know look so look if anybody has any questions Julia's right here she will be happy to answer them and when we're through with the Q&A uh, then we'll go ahead and have you guys uh, her sign the books for you guys if you haven't bought your book already you can do it in the back and of course as you know there's snacks and alcohol up here so there's that all right here's Julia again questions would anyone like some chapstick I have some right here brand new tube does anybody have a question Yes, Patty Lombard. You in the front. Thank you, Julie. You're welcome. So the first chapter that you started with Uh was, did it make it to the final book? This is it. This is the first thing I wrote. I wrote that chapter because it was every one of my fears of looking away for a second. Somebody suffocates. Somebody drowns in the tub. It's so hard to explain when the paramedics come. I was just, I just, you know, snuck out back to have like some chapstick. And so, yeah, but then I wrote that part and I was like, oh, I kind of like this guy. And so then it went forward and backwards. Thousands of pages. Many never to be seen by the light of day. So, so. Um, you the tall gentleman in the back name of Greg. They well, you know, all things that anybody does are in, inspired by real life. It was uh, they both really like it. Um, it's weird for them, I think, because it sounds a lot like me. Um, where's Charlotte Sims? Is she here somewhere? Charlotte Sims, there are two female characters in it. Mimi, who's the, the middle-aged woman, who's the writer, and then Alice, who's narrated, who's 24. And Mimi is very irascible and short-tempered, and Alice is very understanding, and she's in her 20s, and everything's going to turn out all right, and Mimi is on the other side of that. So she's cranky all the time, and Alice is nice. And so Charlotte read it, and she's like, it's mean you and nice you. <laughs> and so Coco, Coco Marcel read it on a plane coming home from college, and she said, well, was weird. And... Uh, you know, I always get the Mimi. Will always gets the Alice. And I was like, oh, come on. That's totally not true. <laughs> or is it? So, but. I know. She, she insisted that I come to her college to read. So I'm going to go read to them. So that'll be interesting. But see, I can pitch it to them like, you know, 
when you're a kid, because that's the thing, when you're a kid, you think, I'm a kid, I know how to raise a kid. But you don't. Like, when you get to be a parent, they're like, when people, well, my husband's a comedy writer, and a lot of comedy writers, this will shock everyone to hear, were unpopular as young people. (laughs) And so they've learned to, like, win people over by their charm and wit. And so, um, oh, I lost my train of thought. It was brilliant, whatever it was. But um, anyway, just to... uh, yeah, well, that's a, I haven't even been drinking it. Uh, oh, it's about parents. Yes, yes, parents, parents. But what you don't understand, however you suffered as a kid, like you were, if you were ostracized and nobody ever picked you for any of the teams and you got invited to no pajama parties ever, I'm going to get over it someday, though. But um, <laughs> as painful as it is with your, as when you're a kid, but when you're a grown-up and you're the parent, it is so much more painful because you just want to go and just break the little necks of the people who are making them unhappy, and that is so frowned upon. So, <laughs> but yeah, so it's just, just not something you can do. So, yes, Carolyn. Good question. Yes, so Julia. Yes. When you wrote chapter eight mm-hmm. or chapter one for you, did you then go forward or back? How did the book? I wonder if I went, I think I went back to chapter one because I knew, well, you know, the first line is something along the lines of because the station wagon blew up in the fire, we had to take a bus to go visit his mother in the hospital. Because that was the thing, I was always sure the children were going to burn the house down. when my. So I went back to that part. And it's funny because we went out when they were big enough to be left alone, four and five. And so... <laughs> So we went out, Chris and I went out one night, they were teenagers, I'm teasing. But um, we came home and the house smelled like fire and I was like, what's going on, what's going on? And Coco said, I was making toast and the toaster caught on fire. And I turned to Chris and said, funny, we always thought it would be Will that burned the house. Because <laughs> Will did do the thing with the batteries where he showed me how you do that. And I was like, oh, that's brilliant. And he's like, I do it in my room all the time. And I was like, oh my God. So, but yeah, so there are small hilarious things taken from real life, but most of it is fiction. But Will read it and said, hey, it's not about any of us. I was like, it's because it's fiction. <laughs> so, so. Yeah, it was you, sir. So, Doug, I believe it is. Yes. <laughs> yes. I didn't see your press credentials. Did you leave them at the... <laughs> yeah, anyway, go ahead. Sorry. The, the, the part that you read, this the first chapter that you read, is kind of a, a, a quiet moment, or a quieter moment, compared to what came directly before that, which I imagine was a lot of oh, yeah. frantic action. Was it... Was that a conscious decision to do, to make that quiet moment the first thing you wrote? And like, I'm, I'm just. It's because it was. Opposite of the way I would go about it, but I'm just curious. Well, it was the first thing that I was thinking about. Was just like how like you don't understand when you're in your 20s how grueling it is to have a kid because it's so relentless. It's just really you don't get a break ever. And I never fully understood that until I was in too deep. (laughs) So you kind of have to stick with it then. But that was sort of... Because that's the thing is when you're 20, you think it's going to be great. You're going to like play Legos and it's going to be really fun and it's really not as much... Yeah, it's not as much Legos as you think it's going to be when you're... (laughs) So So anyway, anybody else? Oh, Oh, hello, hello. Rhonda, please. So what about that first chapter? Yes, ma'am. And you had this conversation between... Did you know there was going to be a Oh, I'll tell you how this part got started. This is kind of interesting because um, Coco, who some of you know, is my daughter. And when she was in fifth grade or maybe middle school, she was reading um, oh, To Kill a Mockingbird. 
And so I read it with her because I hadn't read it since I was 13 probably. And so now reading it as, a, as an extremely middle-aged woman, I was reading it and I was like, oh my God, Boo Radley's autistic. Like there's, he's on the spectrum somehow and it just made everything mean different things to you. And then I had a moment where I was like, oh, this character's always been in fiction and nobody really knew what it was or what to call it, you know. But, and it's sort of also limiting to have a label, but also helpful. Those are the things about, about labels. But so um, they, uh, so I had that incredibly deep, insightful thought. And then I thought, you know what, though? It's a lot easier to write Boo Radley than it is to raise him. And so then it just went like that. Like I was walking down the street on my block that's, you know, not a long block and I started thinking about this mid-block and by the time I reached the stop sign, I knew what the whole story was because it's a woman who had written a character like this and then had to raise it. And that's the thing. So, you know, that's sort of how it all got started. But I could see how it was going to be. Like it, it all laid itself out for me. But that's why she had to be a writer. Even though it's like every book on earth is about the misunderstood writer, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I'm not smart enough to have come up with some other thing to make it work. Okay. Um, Julie Buxbaum. I have some very solid ideas. I hope I live long enough since this one took me six years. I could, you know, I hope it won't take as long this time. So, but I have two other ones I think are good. And then I'll be 150 by the time I'm done with that. So that should carry me till then. So, anybody else? Sir? What writers do you particularly admire? Oh, I'll tell you, this is an exciting story. Um, get ready for it. Those of you who aren't sitting down, hang on to something. <laughs> but there's my favorite book in the world is this book called um, Bel Canto by Ian Patchett, who is a great writer. It's a fantastically good book. And so I wrote my book in secret because it's embarrassing to say I'm writing a novel. So, um, and I finished the first draft and it was 11 o'clock at night and I said to myself you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to Google and find out who Ann Patchett's agent is. So I looked up the woman's name I wrote her a letter and I went to sleep. And then I got up at 6 to get the kids off to school the next day and she had written me back. And I was like what the heck? And so she, you know, we emailed back and forth and she said I want to see it. And I said "Um, I finished it last night and it is a first draft and there are a lot of typos in it. And she's like I don't care, I want to see it. That was a Thursday. So I gave it to her you know, emailed it to her, and then Friday, Hurricane Sandy hit, and all I could think of was, "What if she doesn't have electricity?" You know, because it's all about me. But then, um, then the following Wednesday was Halloween, and she called me on Halloween, and she said, "I want to take you. I'm sending it out tomorrow." And I was like, Ugh. "She said, buckle your seatbelts. It's going to sell in a week." And it did not. <laughs> but it was good because it was a first draft, and like there are various like there's a character named Xander who's like a hunky dreamboat, and he was really just a plot fixture then. But now he's super important to the whole thing, so he got worked out. I've caught a lot of the typos. There are still typos in there, so if we sell out this print run, I need to tell them. So if anybody comes across a typo, can you just you know hold me up? So. Um, but anyway, but that was exciting, and it was like, and then once I rewrote it, it did sell in a week. So that was, that was a super gratifying story. So, anybody else? What's your next book about? I'm not going to tell you, but, but thank you for asking. What? What's your primary audience? 
Oh, I think it's the weary middle-aged parent or the misunderstood child and anybody else in between. <laughs> Maybe grandparents as well. They've got, you know, whatever. There, there are older characters in it also. So, um, Anybody else? Oh. What have you written before this? You had a novel. No, I had not written a novel. Because, you know, I'll tell you why I'd never written a novel. I felt like I didn't have anything in me that, like, the world was dying to hear about. And I didn't want to write one of those novels where, like, Chris calls it a, what is it, a, a, a movie shot inside one man's heart? Like, I was, <laughs> so, you know, I was just like, you know, I'm not that deep. I'm not really interesting. But then once this occurred to me and I realized what it was and I thought, oh, that's actually really interesting because that the, this uh, is a personality type now that people can recognize. But also that it is... In fiction, they, they, I said this already, that they didn't have this label, so it was a lot more interesting then. But it also helps you now to, do, to know what it is. So, But before that, I had written very silly magazine articles or things like, to make the whites of your eyes really pop, draw a thin blue line inside your lower lashes. <laughs> so, anyway, and I wrote for house magazines a lot, so stuff like that. And then I was, you know, Chris Marshall's trophy wife. You can see why. <laughs> so, but when we moved out here, yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> So anyway, yes ma'am. I could totally see this coming to life on the movies. I wish it would. Please talk to some of your important friends. <laughs> they have a lot of money. Oil money's nice, but you know, pretty much anything will do. Tech, whatever. No, it's super visual because that's, you know, because it's interesting the way I hit on sort of what how Frank was going to be the manifestation of his genius. When I was young and I worked in magazines in New York, I worked for Mademoiselle magazine and it was in the Condé Nast, you know, there was Vogue and Glamour and everything. And it was a fascinating experience for me because I only had come up against people who were like valued for scholastic achievement and had done well in school and that was what smart was. And then there were all these people in the fashion department who were just unbelievably chic. Like you just looked at me thought, how do they even think about that? And then you talk to them, particularly ones with British accents, and you talk to them for like five minutes, and you think, oh my God, he hasn't said anything that made any sense yet. <laughs> but it sounded great, and you look amazing. So, but I was like, that's a that's a true kind of genius. And in my head, I was like, Frank's kind of like um, Carl Lagerfeld. If Carl Lagerfeld had had a kid with Diana Vreeland, it would be that. Because, you know, they're, they're not big on eye contact, either one of them. And they look amazing. And they're brilliant. It's just a different kind of brilliant. And I thought, well, that'll be... Because a lot of times in books like this, somebody's a math genius. And that just seemed just so yesterday. So, but anyway. Does anybody else have a question? Anyone? Anyone? Oh, did you hear that sound my throat just made? That was really attractive. <laughs> okay, well, thank you for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.